Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Kirsten Lopez, to interview and discuss a book about to be released by Dr. Alex D. Ketchum. The book is Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We're absolutely thrilled to have you and we're thrilled to talk about your absolutely wonderful book. It's been a joy to read and I think so much of the information is, as it says, it's it's accessible and can be applied to so many parts of archaeology. So really looking forward to diving into the book. But before we do, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? For sure. So hi, everyone. I'm Alex Ketchum. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. I'm the faculty lecturer at the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University here in Montreal, or Djoge. I did my PhD in history. My master's was in history and gender studies, and my undergraduate degree from Wesleyan University was in feminist gender and sexuality studies. I am the director of the Just Feminist Scholarship in Tech, or Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab. That's cool. And I run the speaker series with the way too long name, uh, Disrupting Disruptions, the Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technologies Speaker and Workshop Series. Oh, wow. That sounds so cool. And so do you bring in a lot of different people for the workshop series to further those topics? Yeah, for sure. So uh, this past week, we just hosted our 50th event since 2019. So we've been online in kind of Zoom format for the last few semesters, but the series has kind of focused primarily on AI and big data for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it's really about kind of bringing together scholars across disciplines to talk about the ways that technology impacts our lives, to talk about algorithmic harms and forms of resistance, as well as different ways to communicate our ideas. And it was actually through running the speaker series that kind of partly led me to writing this book. And so a lot of the people who have spoken as part of the series are cited within the text as well. Oh, very cool. And um, would our listeners be able to access any of those uh, presentations? Yeah, for sure. So for most of the events, we've done recordings of them. Uh, The recordings are much better for the ones that we did on Zoom than back in the day when we had the video camera we borrowed from the AV room uh, (laughs) that one of my research assistants was holding. But you can go to disruptingdisruptions.com. That's the redirect URL. And then you can hit the video tab. And there's recordings of about at least 30 of the events, um, if not more. So yeah. And For all of the Zoom events, we've hired professional human captioners, um, since that's pretty important to many people in um, the disabled community. So uh, the captions are done by humans. So you can see the full captions there too. Yeah, it's sometimes funny to read closed captioning that is just generated and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's wonderful now that many platforms do have auto Mm -hmm. transcription. It does still help, but, you know, it's different than with humans, but also humans make mistakes too. So, Mm -hmm. or they'll like have to shorten things. So doing captioning itself is an art form. Oh, very much so. We've been slowly trying to get more transcripts out of our podcast as well. And it's, it's a long involved process, but you're totally right. It's a very important thing to, to make things more accessible as I'm sure we'll be discussing quite in depth uh, on our podcast today. And oh, before I forget, you also, um, you mentioned to me before we started recording, on top of all of these things you're already doing, you're also podcasting. Oh, yeah. So um, the there is both the podcast through the speaker series itself. We just decided to try out if our audiences would like a couple of the events done in podcast form. It ended up actually not being that popular. So that was a pretty limited run. People tend to just like the video recordings and to use Mm. them in their classrooms and stuff like that. But then I also, when we had to move online in summer 2020 for our fall 2020 courses, I decided to teach my intro to feminist and social justice studies class as a podcast because students were spending so much time in front of their computer staring at the screen. It wasn't that visually interesting to have me just 
in front of the screen. And if I wanted to do more complicated video editing, it just would have been kind of impossible. But with podcasting, yes, editing can still take a lot of time. But I felt that I could write long lectures. Like I I usually don't write out my lectures, but in this case, I wrote basically scripts and then I did audio recordings. And so the whole course is through podcast form with transcripts. Oh, wow. But I thought if I'm going to spend all this time, it took about 200 hours to design that course, not including Mm -hmm. sending emails and, you know, the grading for the 230 students who took the class. I thought I'll put everything online Mm -hmm. um, so it's accessible to the public. So there's, I did it first in 2020 and I fortunately got to reuse those materials this fall and just update them. So you can listen on major podcasting, things like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, Pandora, like whatever, I, I put it out through um, all the different like podcasting apps, so you should be able to get it. And then if you go to uh, the course website, um, you can also read the transcript. So I just want to make it education more accessible for the public mm-hmm. too. Not everyone has the chance to take gender studies classes. And mm-hmm. so to kind of have an intro class, it's really grounded in kind of the Canadian and American context for all of the kind of scope, but mm-hmm. it's still hopefully makes things more accessible. So it's been really neat to get feedback on it and people who are like, oh, I'm an engineering student at this like other university and I always wanted to take a gender class, but I couldn't because of my degree. So I got to kind of do this. And so yeah, so that's been that's been really nice. That is so cool. Where can they um sorry, where can our listeners find that? So yeah, if you just go on um the major podcasting apps and put intro to feminist and social justice studies. Uh, it should come up. So, um, and in on all those apps, I think there's like a link to uh, like you know when you get the episode description, it should have mm-hmm. a link to the transcripts. Yeah. Um, and if you go to intro to feminist and social justice studies dot I think it is. I will dot blogger dot com. I'll send uh, you all the. Um, the link to for that episode notes. Awesome. You can yes, we will definitely that. link to everything. I mean, this is something I'm going to want to check out because yeah, I definitely did not have like just with all the electives and whatnot that we had to take in my undergrad and then my master's gender studies wasn't one of them. So this is something I'm going to want to check out. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. They're most of the episodes are around 30 to 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, People might want to skip the first episode or two because that's really for the students in the class. And I warn listeners, like, I'm going to talk about the assignments that students are going to have to do. But there's also some information about the politics of the voice, how we see certain voices as voices of authority or Mm -hmm. power, right? Because I know that my voice records pretty high. Uh, it's not the voice that many first-year students are expecting when they think of a professor. Mm-hmm. So just trying to help them think critically about how are they reacting to this podcast? Why do they take certain information as seen as like more of an authority or as more valid if they hear it from a lower-toned or lower-pitched mm-hmm. voice? So I just want um, listeners to think through that. But episode one and two are really just kind of, hi, this is like what the class is, but after that, it's a week-by-week exploration of uh, the material. And there's also links to most of the readings are available for free or in open access form. Uh, so there are a couple readings that might not be, but I still link to other potential avenues that people mm-hmm. can get, like a free or at least a partial version of those readings. Oh, that's so awesome. And I mean, that's definitely a topic we've discussed on this podcast is just female vocal fry. And Mm. I know I tend to try to lower my voice a little bit. Granted, my voice is a little scratchy today, but I tend to speak in a higher (laughs) um, range as well. And like by segment three in our podcast, but it's usually way back up high. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to start low and then it's up here. Yeah, for sure. I'm not (laughs) sure if you're aware of Hannah McGregor, but uh, she had this podcast called Secret Feminist Agenda, and she talked a lot about uh, a lot of the challenges also around kind of the voice and who's taken seriously Mm -hmm. as well, and how uh, sometimes broadcasters would be interviewing them and they would fixate on, oh, isn't voice Oh, sorry. Isn't vocal fry so bad for your voice or all these things? And they're like, this isn't why we're on the show. You know, we're mm-hmm. here to talk about a different topic. But Not there's this really yeah. vocal fry as well. It's just one of those things that's 
noticed because women's voices are criticized more heavily. And obviously that's a whole other show, but that's <laughs> one of the reasons why we lightly edit um, this show is mostly to showcase and normalize the way women speak, um, especially women in authority. So, And I think that's so fantastic that you do that. And there's a section in the in the book that talks about, you know, this uh, power of the voice and the sound mm-hmm. of the voice and mm-hmm. yeah, and just to get readers to think critically about that because it's something that is so subconscious, mm-hmm. right? We've gone so used to not even paying attention to these patterns. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I really worry about that especially a lot of like younger women scholars for example or people with accents or people who um, English isn't their first language or all different reasons that they're worried that their voice might be criticized. It keeps mm-hmm. them from speaking up or producing their own kind of like audio or media work as well, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. of fears of that criticism. That's a really good point. Um, and speaking of the book, if we want to transition that way, because I mean, all of these topics are brought up and I think it's like, I know it sounds like we're gushing, but it's just, it's so good. Um, so you. again, the book is Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. And as Alex said, there's a portion about the power of the voice, but there's so many wonderful segments on, um, one, explain it explains all the jargon, why accessibility is important, talking about disability, um, what are the roles of the university? What are the roles of academics? What are the roles of publishers? It's just, it's not just a call to action. It's a how to do the call to action too. Mm -hmm. And so to dive right in, you mentioned a a little bit about this with your, your speaker series, but why did you want to write this book? Yeah. Well, thank you first of all for that like lovely introduction. Um, This one of the drives of writing this book is I kind of have this mentality that it can be difficult to learn certain skill sets. Mm-hmm. And once I learn this certain skill sets, my first instinct is I want to share it with other people and explain how to do it in an easier way. So people don't have to keep reinventing the wheel of how to do it over and over. Mm-hmm. So I had done that um, with a few zines or as the publisher microcosm calls them, bookettes. Um, so I had written two zines. One was how to start a feminist restaurant, which was based on a lot of my dissertation work, historical dissertation work. But I wanted to combine a lot of the lessons that I got in from the hundreds of businesses that I had studied mm-hmm. um, and kind of combine it in one place in a quick, easy, accessible read that sold for less than five bucks. And then I also did this for another zine that I produced with Microcosm called How to um, Organize Inclusive Events. And also, again, just trying to like share this information. And so with the book, it's kind of this expanded space where I could both do kind of like theoretical discussions, talk of bringing forward this kind of like feminist and accessibility, disability justice kind of driven lens onto public scholarship, something Mm -hmm. that I thought wasn't receiving enough attention. You know, we kept getting these calls like, do more public engagement, do more public engagement. But it's like, there's different costs to doing that for different kinds of scholars. And so I wanted to have that kind of critical side, Mm -hmm. um, as well as kind of historically grounding things, talking about some of the debates and technical things. But the whole second half of the book, part two, is called toolkits, which are really to teach people the skills or give them resources and how to teach themselves the skills to do this. Because I want to kind of take down some of those barriers. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to tell people, hey, you should be doing this. But if people don't know how, that really places the burden on them. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the things that really excited me about this work when um, I realized that we were going to be reading this and talking to you is that for myself as, um, and anyone who's gone through graduate school, you do all this research and most graduate students, I feel, especially in the social sciences, such as anthropology and archeology, span you get this feeling that it is so important to communicate what we do to the public because that's what it's for in Mm -hmm, essence. mm -hmm. Right. Um, especially, 
So as an archaeologist working in cultural resource management, um, the whole idea behind doing archaeology as a field um, around things like development and construction is to sort of save history for the people at, at large, mm-hmm. whoever that is. The, you know, and one of the things that you address in the beginning of this book are the different publics that you can yes, speak yeah. to. And, you know, identifying who it is, because so many archaeologists are like the public in general, but we can't release anything to the public hmm. because of, as again, one of the things I was happy that you uh, mentioned is that there are some fields um, and archaeology is one of them to where a lot of the information is not available to the public, but that doesn't mean there isn't a public that you can speak to, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or there are different ways of addressing the research to the general public. Um, and just helping people orient around like, okay, well, I have this whole skill set that I just did a whole degree around. How do I actually talk to the public about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and like you were just saying, the, the skill set to do that is underdeveloped, in my opinion. Um, We're definitely not taught. I mean, most programs don't necessarily teach you how to interact with the public or publish for the public, I guess. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All of the above um, and all of the different ways that you can do that. This podcast is one way. I mean, we speak a lot to the public as the archaeologist public, um, Mm -hmm. the general community of archaeologists and interested people. but then there's also, you know, students is another public or mm-hmm. um, uh, tribal communities is another public or, you know, the smaller local communities that people are engaged in. Um, so I really appreciated and was excited to see uh, not just identifying, well, definitely identifying all of those things, but also being like, oh, yes, if you want to do this, these, these are different ways that you can. <laughs> Thank you. And I think there's a few things in what you brought up that I, if it's okay, if I can like emphasize. Please do. For sure. I think there's a few kind of challenges that you're speaking to. One is that in many ways, programs actually actively dissuade writing in accessible ways, right? I'm talking about graduate studies programs, right? There's so much emphasis on the academic article written for a small group of experts, And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the academic article. I just don't think that's the only way we should be expressing and sharing our ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of benefits sometimes to writing to a small group of colleagues and getting feedback in that way. But if you're going to write a piece like that, it would also be useful to think, oh, is there a way I can write a blog post? Is there a way I can have an exhibit? Other ways of sharing your research, especially for those of us that are at public institutions mm-hmm. that are funded by uh, tax money, for example. And when this information, this research is so closed off, it creates this really strong boundary or divide between kind of research institutions and the public themselves, whereas actually it would benefit both groups mm-hmm. to work together. And then the other thing is like, who is the public, right? You're both speaking to this. It's kind of this group that we all act as if we know who we're talking about. But when it comes to listening to an archaeology podcast, I'm the public. I'm not trained as an archaeologist, right? I'm not an expert in archaeology in any way, right? But if I'm in kind of my smaller group of like historians, then I'm not considered the public. So a lot of us also change our identities as we move through different spaces, And also the other kind of thing that I was hearing in uh, your question and comment was also this idea of like, well, some materials might not be good to share with Mm -hmm. everyone, right? There's, there are different, while there's a lot of importance in the open access movement, and I really appreciate so much work done by open access advocates. And a lot of the book talks about this idea of openness. There also need to be limitations, right? Sometimes it's important, for example, for indigenous data, for example, like that isn't necessarily appropriate to be open for everyone. So also, are there ways to have information respected for certain communities and groups while also being able to share certain research findings in ways that are beneficial to other communities? So there's, it's never just a single 
yes or no is trying mm-hmm. to find this balance, right? And navigating who you want to express your research findings with, why, and what's the most effective way. And your different publics or audiences that you're trying to access and speak to, you're going to need different techniques depending on where they're at, what technologies they like to use, what they're interested in as well. So it's really about building relationships rather than just outputs. That is a wonderful, wonderful description. And we will be diving more into who is the public and the audience of the book and um, more of these amazing topics that make me so happy just talking about how do we get our information out there, what can be said, what can't be said, all of that. And we will do that in our next segment. We'll be back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have the wonderful Dr. Alex D. Ketchum, and we're talking about her book, Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. And before we dive right back into the different subjects in the book, uh, Alex, where will people be able to access the book and when is it coming out? Yeah, thank you. So uh, in Canada, it's May 1st at uh, you can get through Concordia University Press, University of British Columbia, UBC Press, and it'll also be open access, available in open access form as of May 1st, nice. as long as everything with the pandemic doesn't mess anything up, but that's May 1st <laughs> is the day. And then um, through uh, University of Chicago Press, I think now it's June 1st okay. uh, for the states, but it will be available open access all around the world for anyone who has, you know internet access um, in May, and you should be able to order it from your local bookstore as well. Wonderful. And you mentioned a potential discount code? Yes, thank you. Um, Yeah, so if you order it now, uh, be a pre-order and use the code KETCHUM20 at either UBC, Concordia, or uh, University of Chicago Press's websites, you get 20% off. And I will send you uh, that link as well so you can share it with Wonderful. That is great. And we're telling you folks, it is a wonderful book. You should check it out. Um, so looking, I, I pulled a bunch of quotes and this is right at the beginning of the book. And it says, this volume takes seriously the class, gender, racial, sexual orientation, and disability of scholars as writers and creators, but does not stop there. And I really like that. It's, it seems so encompassing in that, We've seen this in um, queer queer archaeological theory and feminist archaeological theory that those types of lenses really open open the field to a broader way of studying archaeology than traditional methods. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in this way as well that feminist... um, uh, uh, feminist theory and feminism um, is also a wonderful way to open up most fields to public scholarship in general. Yeah, I mean, I know that not everyone is comfortable with the term feminism because mm-hmm. there are definitely histories of uh, racism within fem- certain feminist movements. Mm-hmm. But the definition of feminism that I'm using in this text is definitely a more inclusive one with a lot of grounding and in intersectionality as established by Kimberly Crenshaw. And so here that I'm using feminism, not in a prescriptive definition, but I tend to mean it in working towards social, political, and economic equity of mm-hmm. all sexes and gender. So outside of just the gender binary and really being inclusive by thinking through how the forces of, of sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, racism, classism, ableism, and colonialism, as well as environmental concerns impact different individuals differently, but also the kind of social scale, right? We're looking at like larger. So it's not just on individual basis. 
Um, and that feminism itself isn't static, but rather it's an ideal that we're striving towards and it's a process. So I'm kind of using mm-hmm. that version of feminism to really guide the way that I approach this book because it doesn't make sense to treat scholars as a single group um, without taking into account all the difference between scholars and the different experiences that they're going to have. Oh, that's a great definition. I, I like that one. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> well, and I think it's such a great way to give provide a lens in many ways for providing scholarship to the public and the many publics that we were discussing in the first um, segment. And because we have that it's so encompassing and I guess you mentioned this in the book and I'm I'm curious about like with the book and then your, your own um, research and opinions and whatnot. So why, why do you think this is important in the first place that we should be using um, this type of lens and then even trying to get it to the public in the first place? Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Part of this book is a response to seeing universities say, go and do public scholarship. There's kind of a disingenuousness of universities in saying that mm-hmm. and because of what kind of work they reward, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to tenure review processes, when it comes to promotion, when it comes to hiring committees, when it comes to postdocs, when it even comes to like master students applying for PhD programs or like all of these kinds of in academic things, right? Like what is rewarded? Well, it's research and it's research published in top journals with high mm-hmm. H index, like that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So when they say, oh, well, we want our scholars to engage with the public and they're not providing financial compensation, they're not valuing that in like review processes, right? Like if they're not going to back it up with like money, financial support and training, it just doesn't feel like they actually care that much about it. Um, And then also in just saying, telling people to go out and do something without taking into account that there are different risks for different scholars to do this, that also isn't a very equitable position to take. So something I talk about in the book, um, based off of my own research, is just the kind of trolling, uh, doxing, digital harassment scholars can face, either like at intense rates usually by women, like women, people of color, women of color, uh, queer individuals will face this at higher rates, as well as people who do research in certain fields, such as people who are talking about the climate crisis, or people who are talking about uh, COVID research, or people Mm -hmm. who are talking about feminist research, right? They're more at risk of being targeted for harassment. And so just to tell scholars, oh, go out, do interviews on the TV or on radio, right? Like there's different risks of that. And so universities need to support their scholars. And with my research team, we contacted every media, university media relations office in at every Canadian university and to see what supports they had, if they had forms, if they had things on their websites. So we looked at their websites. We also contacted all the offices. And apart from basically one university, there were no formal supports. There um, weren't like, no formal There were su- not. There okay. were no formal support. So oh, universities sometimes would say, oh, we'll deal with something on a case-by-case basis, but there weren't systems in place that let scholars know before going out and doing this stuff that they would be supported. And in the cases when scholars were facing harassment, they were usually having to deal with it by themselves and maybe one or two supportive colleagues. And so this is a problem, right? If you're going to ask people to do something as part of their job, it's also your responsibility to support them and take care of them and not put them in harm's way. So I don't bring this up to scare off any listeners who are interested Mm -hmm. in engaging with the public. I think it's really important work, but there are also risks. And I think our institutions, our employers uh, should be there to support us. And I also include some information in the book as well as actually um, digital resources as well about UMass Amherst did create some policies um, and forms and stuff to support their scholars. So I'm really hoping, it's kind of like a side project, but I'm really hoping um, to encourage many universities to actually create these kind of formal systems. Um, So that's the first part of the question that you asked. (laughs) And then um, part two about um, kind of 
why should I think it was why should the public care? Am I remembering? Yeah, well, it's like why? Well, I think why should we care? And then why should the public care? I think it's twofold. Yeah. So um, I think there's a few things. So like, kind of, what are the stakes for researchers for scholars? to um, like, why would we want to do this, right? Many of us are overworked, underpaid. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're in a teaching capacity, you're just getting more and more demands on your labor and time. There's service capacities. Also, we are more than just our jobs and we have mm-hmm. you know, families, we have pets, we have hobbies, we have friendships, we have like lots of other things that we care about. So why would we want to I mean, there's a life outside of our work. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine we're more than just the labor that we create? (laughs) But at the same time, I think you can actually benefit a lot. This is kind of like on the like selfish side. But for example, if you, um, you know, you give a talk at an academic conference, and sometimes you can anticipate the kinds of questions you're going to get or the kind of comments someone might recommend another theorist to check out or something like that. But if you talk about your research at the local public library or at a bookstore, right, you're going to get Mm -hmm. completely different questions, usually different feedback that might make you think about your research in a different way. So that's kind of one of the things that I think actually can really help your own scholarship by engaging in this work. Mm-hmm. It's also really nice to have people actually comment on what you're doing and receive feedback in more real time. So if your form of public scholarship is even things like social media accounts and stuff, academic publishing can take so long. And if it's paywalled and only a couple people read it, you know, you've spent sometimes three years for this piece to come out and it feels quite anticlimactic. But if you also write a version of your research in a blog post and people are actually engaging with it, that can be amazing. I uh, founded a website called the Historical Cooking Project in 2013 with a few uh, friends and colleagues when I was a grad student. And it was a way of us looking at uh, old cookbooks and kind of placing those cookbooks within their historical context, but also cooking from them and seeing what lessons we got in this kind of embodied experience. Oh, and that we sounds wrote like about so much fun. It was really fun. It was a really nice way to like make history come alive, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so that website has gotten so many views. And you know, I think last time I checked, it was near like seven hundred thousand views. And yes, Whoa. some of those are just like bots and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but that's way more people that are going to read those posts than will read any of the things that are behind, you know, a paywall. Like, oh, <laughs> I'm not sure. trying to undermine my own more like formal, as it were, I'm doing bunny quotes scholarship, because I think all of these are forms of scholarship. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's great to get comments like that, or people writing personal emails of saying like, oh, you wrote about this cookbook that my grandma had, and that brought back memories, you know, like, that's also wonderful. And so, I think you can get a lot of personal uh, benefits as an individual scholar, but then why should the public care? And like, part of it is like our commitment to communities. So not to put it just in financial terms, right? But like many of our universities are taxpayer funded and it just feels like a shame that if communities are able to like benefit more from the research that's being produced, um, I really want to move away from kind of extractive research in which you go to a community, just extract from them, and then put the findings behind a paywall, right? So part of that has to do um, with different forms of um, anti-oppressive research. So things like um, Potts and Brown have this great piece about being an anti-oppressive researcher, but I think it's also about being an anti-oppressive research communicator is a Mm -hmm. big part of that. Um, and then also uh, for the public, like there is amazing research that is being done that you might be interested in from a fun perspective, but some of it can really impact uh, your lives, like things that could lead to much better policy or, uh, you know, research from people who study urban design and planning to healthcare to, you know, education, all these different things could could actually lead to really great changes in our society. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it's just stuck behind a paywall, no one reads it. What a shame. You know, we have people who have committed their lives and years and years and decades sometimes of research um, to something that they really care about. And it's just such a shame 
when people don't have access to those findings. Oh, definitely. Well, and on top of that too, when they, let's say it's not behind a paywall, but then Mm -hmm. you have the barriers of jargon and all these things where it's just like, I mean, there are certainly, I know in the archaeological field, man, we love our terms. We love our jargon, but I'll read, you know, accessible articles and stuff. And I'll be like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I know they said pottery at some point. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because that's a huge thing is that while I really appreciate a lot of, like I said, the open access movement, it's more than just open access. It's also about the piece itself. So yeah, it is wonderful if um, anyone can like click on a link and read it, but a piece written for a few experts in your field might not be interesting to people outside of that small group of people it might not be accessible because the language as you're mentioning being used kind of like if everyone's citing tons of theory not that people outside of the university can't understand theory of course they can but I think when we think about um, making our scholarship accessible it's more than just throwing a pdf online it's also about the forms we're choosing to write in the kinds of examples that we're giving right thinking about your audience If you think about, for example, like many of us have friends outside of academia, for example, how do you talk about your research with them than like, for example, the person, your coworker or your lab mate, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be different and that's not bad. It's just, it actually is a skill set and it's something to value and honor of being able to talk about work, research and findings in a variety of different forms. Mm -hmm. And what kind of frustrates me is when we don't actually see that as a skill set to be valued. And I think part of that is also fear-driven, right? When people are so um, used to talking about the research in a certain way, it can actually be uncomfortable to think about communicating it in new forms. And so I hope that we actually see it as something that's to be honored and to be learned and that there's not just some like instinct of how to communicate it, right? It's something that you can build on and work on. And that's why I thought it was important to have the toolkits in the book, Mm -hmm. you know, to say like, hey, here's skills you can actually work on and also experiment with and not be afraid to try out something new. You know, you're not going to be perfect at podcasting the first time you try to podcast. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. You weren't perfect at you know, your archaeological skill sets the first time you tried them, right? It was something you worked on. Exactly. No, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way to put it. And I know I've personally received a lot of pushback um, from colleagues when creating like booklets, pamphlets, activity books for kids. And they'd be like, why did you use the word arrowhead? It's projectile point. Why did you use the word shirt? You know, or why yeah. did you use the word shirt? I'm like, because a five-year-old, is, well, I guess a five-year-old, I don't know if they can read quite yet, but maybe an eight-year-old won't know what a projectile point is but they'll know an arrowhead, you know, mm-hmm. type of thing. And I just, I think it's funny, the the pushback against certain kind of use of language that I, I receive in um, from professionals that are like, well, that's not professional enough. And I'm like, but this is for non-archaeologists. Yeah, exactly. And right, and it's also too, if you're going, there are certain ways of like, there's lots of different styles of writing. So for example, there's like, plain language writing, which is like a specific way of writing for certain types of communities, right, to make it more accessible. Or there's also ways to just define a term the first time you use it or to not use acronyms. Just things like that even can take down a lot of barriers, you know, invite Mm -hmm. people into the conversation. Don't put up a wall so they can't read your pamphlet. Exactly. Because kids might be interested in seeing like, oh, like, this thing you know is an arrowhead, we also call it the pointed projectile. I just misused the term. That's again. totally fine. Like, right? Like, but like, there's a way, like, kids also like learning things. So they might be like, oh, okay, I just learned another name for this thing. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't, like, assume that the audience knows it. So, so yeah. it seems like a lot of it is needing to have a understandable starting place that's accessible to folks and then move from there and bring everybody with you. Yeah. And also, you know, not everyone also is going to care is the other thing too. (laughs) Like, and that's okay, you know, but the fact that you're creating resources 
that people can engage with. But, you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of media out there, right? So, and that's okay that not everyone's going to care, but it's really great for the people who are interested and are looking up things that they can find these really well-researched, valuable resources. Mm-hmm. Well, especially when you get to things that people, I mean, a lot of people are interested in, Arche- I'll, obviously I'll use archaeology as an example. Um <laughs> I feel like most of the public is interested in some form of archaeology and, you know, a lot of archaeologists can relate to, you know, people ask like, oh, what do you do? They light up when (laughs) they say archaeology, but once you actually tell them what it is you do, their eyes glaze over. Exactly. Um, Not dinosaurs. (laughs) We're sorry. (laughs) So... Or even just like, it's not Indiana Jones. Yeah. Like, We're significantly <laughs> more boring. People <laughs> think that about historians too. To go to do archaeology. And I'm like, just here. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, just, just around here. There's stuff all over the place. And they're like, really? Like, you know, fill in the blank gold or this or that. And I'm like, no. But there might be some, like, like broken bricks and, yeah, exactly. um, you know, some glass shards that are real cool. They're from 1930. <laughs> but being able to communicate, you know, even in casual conversation, like you're saying, like, how do you uh, talk about the interesting part? Like, mm-hmm. the, a lot of the public is is in some ways trained through Hollywood to focus on the the items but the more interesting part is the story behind it that brick from 1930s can be like yes this you know place was demolished because it was used in you know i don't know you know this one situation or was the biggest employer for you know the founding of the the town or the city um and it's now lost to history. Um, mm-hmm. An mm-hmm. example might be like, to my knowledge, anyway, the this particular building is was is gone and totally demolished. Um, but in my neighborhood, there used to be a, an early insane asylum, mm. and that was something that people kind of cling on to because it's you know mysterious and fascinating and creepy creepy and all of that but it's kind of like it was also just money laundering um establishment (laughs) and being able to talk about the history of it and what makes it interesting versus just like it used to be this really creepy building that was here oh yeah Um, and what is it that makes it creepy like an asylum from the 19 1850s sorry versus something that was you know a, a modern mental health facility like how those things have changed and and you know being able to to engage with the the parts that the public is interested in to try and kind of fish them in versus just talking about the the broken glass that might be near the site because they're like yeah exactly don't care (laughs) yeah and that's something we can definitely talk about more in the next segment because they're in the toolkit section and about social media it there's lots of tips on storytelling, podcasting, videos, websites, and I'm, I'm sure Alex can describe more how we can get to that story as opposed to just being like, there are bricks. <laughs> <laughs> so we will be back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaea animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. We are discussing the book Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication with the author, Dr. Alex D. Ketchum. We've talked a lot about why accessibility is important, why um, 
public scholarship and bringing it to the different forms of public is important. How we go about that. We have discussed a lot of topics. And before we dive into some other topics about um, toolkits and how we can use different social media platforms, we can talk a little bit about the type of press that um, Alex chose, the font and whatnot, so that the book itself would be accessible. So Alex, jump on in. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. So with creating this book, Concordia University Press, who's the publisher, and I thought really intentionally about the layout and trying to make it as accessible as possible to different readers. There will always be challenges, right? For some people, uh, font size will never be enough, or you might have people who have dyslexia. And so there are certain fonts that are better for people with dyslexia. So the font is weighted a little bit heavier at the bottom, um, which we chose intentionally. We went with slightly larger font, though in the open access version, you will be able to make the font as big as you would like um, for people who have a difficulty seeing um, or for whom using larger font is valuable. So I was really fortunate to work with a press who was so on board with taking all of these different uh, challenges and in publishing into account. Mm-hmm. And I really valued that. And uh, for people who are looking for publishers, I actually highly recommend this press. It's a fairly young press. Uh, but what I really liked about them, so I was telling off air a bit of a story of how this book came to be. And I originally was seeking matching funding for this grant from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. They require 50% matching funding for their connections grants. Mm-hmm. And I asked the press, like, hey, can you, you know, put like $150, $200 towards this? And they said, no, but that sounds like a cool topic, the speaker series. Um, but would you like to write a short book about it? Um, and originally it's supposed to be about a like 50. 15,000 word book and it's ended up to be about 400 pages but it's also 400 pages because of layout so uh, they were really supportive all the way through the process and of course uh, it's also going to be available open access which was really important to me it would feel very hypocritical to publish a book about accessible scholarship that wasn't available in open access form and that wasn't published in a way that was more on the more accessible side. As many of you know, academic books sometimes are like $200 for a text and no one can pay for that. So um, we wanted to keep the pricing less than $30 despite the high page count of about 400 pages and stuff like that. So it was really great to work with a press who supported that. Mm-hmm. And another thing is that uh, I really recommend working with people who value you and valuing the people who value you. So um, it's a pretty small publishing team um, of Jeffrey, Ryan, and Meredith. That's like the main team at Concordia Press, but they've been so supportive that I also did my second book with them too, which is coming out in the fall. Um, Ooh, what's on it the called? His- it's called Ingredients for Revolution, American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses. Oh my gosh. So it's based on my dissertation work um, and like history of like kind of feminist businesses and feminist food stuff. So yeah, and it was just a wonderful press to work with. So um, there's a lot of times in academia and in academic settings where I think being kind to people isn't valued enough. So mm-hmm. when you can find those spaces where care is valued, I highly recommend going to those places. Amen. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful, wonderful way to go about that. And yes, I, I I'm hoping our open access uh, becomes like a, a bigger thing, especially, I mean, for us with archaeology. And you bring up a really great point in the book about like open access journals are great, however, and they also need stable funding sources mm-hmm. and um, coordinating access. And I think it's wonderful that in the book, like you're you're not just saying do open access, but it's like, we, re- we recognize that this is also an issue and mm-hmm. here's how some ways to go about that. And you present other options as well beyond just open access journals because that can be a funding issue on top mm-hmm. of things. So I think For that's sure. great. Thank you. But sorry, there really wasn't a question in that. More, more <laughs> gushing. Uh, 
Um, but one of the things that I, and if it's cool, if we can talk about this too, are the different um, social media platforms you bring up as ways to engage in public scholarship. And I do find it very interesting. I do think there is a bit of a pushback in professional communities for using social media as a way to engage with people um, just because they're not, you know, your traditional academic paper journal or even your traditional maybe open access journal when you get something like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, you also mentioned websites, videos, podcasts, so forth. I think there can be a bit of pushback in the academic community, but also, I mean, non-academic communities, federal archaeology, cultural resource management companies and stuff get the pushback mm-hmm. be like, well, those aren't professional. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Like, well, do they have to be, you know, the the top of the line professionalism? Like, it's still professional. It's just different. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of challenges. I'll start with the social media before, like, the website and podcast stuff. So, um, yeah. I mean, there are definitely things to worry about with social media, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They have their own community guidelines. They can kick you off at any time. You don't mm-hmm. have the same kind of control over your data. The data is mined. Like I talk about that in the book, like those kinds of issues too of like giving over cor- our information to these corporations and so forth. And those are definitely things to be concerned with. But if you are going to be on social media and you want it to be a place where you share your research or scholarship, I think that can actually be a really great forum to connect with people that you might not have otherwise. I think each it's important to think about the technological affordances, kind of like a jargony term from like communication studies, but the technological affordances of these platforms. So if you have research that is really visual-based, mm-hmm. you know, you have images you want to share, maybe you're an, um, from art history, or maybe you're someone who does archaeological digs and you want to show that brick, for example, that you were talking about earlier, or if you want to show coins or you want to show, I don't know, like different parts from the dig site, um, like that could be a great place to use something more like Instagram or something, um, whereas Twitter is really primarily text-based. So also like knowing what these platforms kind of cater to can be useful. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are also great ways to build community. There's, it really depends what discipline you're in, but Some fields have a particular conference that people go to, but especially if you're an interdisciplinary scholar, it can be really hard to know what conferences to go to. But on things like Twitter, you can actually connect with other like-minded scholars who you might not have met otherwise, which can be great. Um, Everything that you're putting on certain platforms, such as Twitter, unless you have a private account, which is pretty rare on Twitter, um, anyone can read too. And people can actually, with platforms like Twitter, they don't have to have a Twitter account to see what you're writing. So it can be a nice way to actually reference it. And in my citations in the book, I actually cite people's tweets. Um, So I'm trying to put into practice the way that actually Twitter itself can be a scholarly practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And with the book, I really emphasize that, you know, if I just said like, if I wrote a book about how to use Facebook, you know, that's my age poorly, right? We change our <laughs> platforms so often and like yes. people are moving off of Facebook and Meta or whatever more and more um, for a variety of reasons. But a lot of the the lessons are really about like, what do these platforms offer? Mm-hmm. Even if it's something we haven't imagined yet, you know, right now TikTok's really popular, but you know, maybe next year it won't be, but like, okay, so that's a video format. So how could your scholarship work well there? But also I want scholars to think about maybe backing up that material in a different way too, um, or uh, thinking about like where their information is going. So that's part of it. I also, in the book with the toolkit section, um, I'm not telling people to try to do all of these things at once, but (laughs) trying to figure out the things that are like useful for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about people making comics further as a way of um, showcasing their research and communicating it. Some of it too, isn't that you have to be the producer of it, but it's working with other people. So depending on what field you're in, like for example, the hard sciences, um, there tends to be a lot of kind of views of like collaboration Mm -hmm. um, where certain fields in humanities and social sciences, it's the single author model. But 
as you show with making your own podcast, right? It's It can be a collaborative process. It can also be working with people who are professionalized in certain skills. So I have a whole section of how to work with journalists, mm-hmm. how to um, give TV interviews, how to make yourself available for those interviews. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for journalists to know that you're willing to be interviewed, um, different databases to put your name on, um, how to write op-eds, right? So it doesn't have to be that you all of a sudden need to learn how to do everything, that you need to know how to code in all these different programming languages and all that. Like, I'm trying to ask people to kind of think about the skill sets they want to build on, different communities they want to um, touch base with, and different strategies in doing it. And of course, there's going to be a variety of approaches to do that. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's great too that you mention in the book are non-online sources for mm. especially for areas that may not have great um, internet accessibility and like what are some other ways to provide information to people who may not have access and um, granted a lot of it's print but I mean that can be like you mentioned earlier zines it can be little booklets it can be um, pamphlets, uh, comics, but I think it's great that it's not all online based, that there is the option for print as well, because surprisingly enough, we don't have great internet access for the United States. Yeah, there's a lot of areas that don't have, even if they have internet, they don't have broadband access, or mm-hmm. people might be using devices that aren't able to like utilize every website feature. Um, people like there is this fear too of the digital dark ages right I mean um of like potentially losing all of this stuff that we're producing so exhibits can be a great way to reach out to people um having events can be a really great way kind of mixing where you're putting your um research can be really helpful and also fun I think that's something I want to emphasize is that this could also be a fun aspect of your work and that doesn't denigrate it. Having fun doing something doesn't make it less professional or less worthy. It's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love that you mentioned that. It makes it easier to communicate if you're excited about it. Oh, very much. Uh, Definitely. Not to mention finding the energy to do this, but one scholar that comes to mind that's actually really good, and we've had her on the show before in the early days, um, is Chelsea Rose. And she works out of Southern Oregon University, um, but she helps uh, with the Chinese Diaspora Project here in Oregon. And she does a lot on Instagram. She had previously been... Um, on the U.S. version of oh, what was that show? Um, oh, was it Time Team? Yes, the U.S. Oh, I love Time, Time Team America. Team. It's such a good show. Yes, um, and but she still is active in social media. She does a lot in the local communities um, of presentations, like you're talking about, both library presentations, university presentations presentations to like small archaeological societies but also just like the general public um in you know the smaller uh local areas so there's a a town that she works in um that had a large chinese diaspora community during the gold rush in jacksonville oregon and she's done like there was a a small winery down there that did a wine for her like with her name in there and she used that to help um uh you know promote um the the work that she she does um in in bringing awareness of uh the chinese diaspora in oregon to the general public and you know what happened with that diaspora at the turn of the last century and just there's a lot of of history um that people i think are interested in if they knew about Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. she does a pretty good job at using different tools um to promote that work so it's neat to see um 
some of the tools that you're talking about being like, oh, I know a couple of people who use some of those mm-hmm. um, and seeing how effective they really are. That's awesome. Yeah. And like the thing too is that some fields, of course, lend themselves more easily to communicating kind of through stories, right? I think archaeology, history, right? History is literally histoire, a story. Um, but I think no matter what discipline, no matter what field you're in, there is some kind of hook that would draw people's interest mm-hmm. and people are fascinated about it. And even if it's to to inspire future archaeologists or inspire future historians or future uh, biochemists, right? <laughs> like I don't know how many biochemists listen to your podcast, right? But just like across disciplines, it's right. Like your work could inspire others to enter those fields as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. That's why I personally, so I'm a federal archaeologist and hypothetically all federal archaeologists um, are... I mean, it depends your job duties, but the National Historic Preservation Act, you're pretty much mandated to do some kind of outreach for the public and you're supposed to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love working with kids and just seeing their excitement about archaeology and learning what it actually is and um, hearing kids be like, well, I think I want to be an archaeologist someday. And it's like, oh, my heart. That's awesome. (laughs) It makes me very happy. But we here we have just a few more minutes left for our final segment. And Alex, what would you say um, for folks reading your book or listening to the podcast and all this, what would you say is kind of your call to action for different kinds of scholars to get on board with <laughs> doing um, this kind of outreach? And what do you what do you hope people really learn about all of this? I think one of my big takeaways is to think critically about who are your commitments to and why are you doing the work that you're doing? You know, like, why did you get into this in the first place? Because I'm guessing it wasn't to just write academic journal articles, Um, (laughs) right? So like, where's your passion? Who do you want to know this stuff? Who do you want to talk to, right? That's not just unilateral or one directional, right? Who do you want to be in conversation with. Um, so, and also to take risks and try things. And uh, yeah, so I think just uh, hopefully encouraging people to consider doing at least maybe one of the things in the book, um, but also being aware of kind of the structural concerns of who this doing public scholarship is most accessible to in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to, I want to leave on a slightly more optimistic oh, note of just do. like, just like, just, uh, I really hope that people check it out and because it's open access, um, you can click on it, go through it. You also don't have to read it in order too, especially the toolkit section. You can really jump around and see what's, uh, useful for you. And I want to thank all of you for having me on this podcast. This has been such a great experience. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm not an archaeologist, but it's been great to learn about the field um, and kind of see uh, overlap with history as well and feminist studies. And that's just been fantastic. Uh, So you yourselves are setting a great model and precedent of doing this public scholarship. So thank you for doing that. Oh, my goodness. Thank thank you. Thank you. That was, I really appreciate that. Well, we it, it has been an absolute delight having you on the podcast, learning so much more about the different ways we can engage in public scholarship. Really enjoyed reading the book. And so it's been an absolute delight. And for our listeners, we will have links to everything mentioned in the show and uh, give all the information that was provided. And, um, we hope and the discount can. code and the discount code. Yes, <laughs> don't, don't um, pre-order so you can get that discount because exactly this book will help. I feel like you know provide you with resources not only for just accessing the public but finding your um, as Alex mentioned the the reason why you do this like what what keeps you afloat what keeps you motivated and what what energizes you um it's doubtful that it's just the academic journals Um. (laughs) yes well doing things like this i know i mean i'm speaking for my fellow hosts 
doing the podcast definitely keeps me energized and yes. want to keep keep rolling with this. And so listeners, if you are interested in checking out our other podcast episodes, definitely check out um, our blog our, our website at womeninarchaeology.com. And there you can check out our other episodes. You can check out our blog posts. There is a link to our Patreon account if you would like to help support the podcast and keep it going. Um, you can also access all the different podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, um, all the different kinds of platforms. And on those, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we'd love to know what you think of the podcast, what other topics we could explore, if you yourself would like to come on the podcast. And so also feel free to email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or DM us at at women archies on twitter again alex thank you so much for coming kirsten it was as always awesome chatting with you and everybody stay safe and healthy bye, bye. <laughs>